Okay, we are in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And so, so that you, you can be reminded what's happening in the book of Hebrews is that these are the Jews that live in Judea around Jerusalem and the persecution around them is, is getting heavier every day. And so they are thinking about going back under Judaism so that they can avoid the persecution and then feeling as if that then they could turn around and go back out of Judaism once the persecution goes away. But what the, the, the writer of Hebrews is warning them is that you cannot do that because if you do that, you will die. You will die physically. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to die physically because you'll end up in Jerusalem and you'll end up uh, uh, in the persecution that's going to come by the Romans, the destruction that Jesus had prophesied. And that's going to take place. He didn't know when it was going to take place, but he knew it was coming shortly. And that was going to t take place within four years of the time that this book was written. Uh, and and uh, he said you'd get stuck there. So <clears throat> we, we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And reading from, from uh, let's, let's pick up again where we left off last time. We'll, we'll overlap just a little bit. In verse 4, Hebrews 12, 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So he reminds them from this text in the Old Testament. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he scourges. He disciplines and he scourges everyone whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God disciplines everyone. And so what he's telling them is this persecution that you're going through, this is part of the discipline of God. God is preparing you for something greater. There are things that everybody goes through in life. And he prepares us for something greater. I shared with you last time about the, the kidney problem that I had when I was a freshman and sophomore in college and how that had gotten so bad because it was misdiagnosed. And it says, it says here, in, it, it starts talking about the results of discipline that take place. And so let's pick it up in verse 9 of Hebrews 12. That's where we left off last time. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciples us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Lord was very gracious to me when I got saved as a freshman in college. That day I was all alone in my room. I had somebody had shared with me several months before. And I had started attending a little Bible study through the Navigator's Campus Ministry. I was all alone in my room. And when I asked Jesus to forgive me and come into my life, this big weight 
felt like it had just been lifted off of me. And then all of a sudden, somebody was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes to see who it was. There was nobody there. But his presence, the presence of God was so strong. So here I had this visitation of the Lord that was so strong and I just started weeping. The Lord demonstrated his goodness to me. I had had a, a, a real, real trouble with pornography. And it was the testimony during the, the occasion when I was being witnessed to as a freshman, one of the verse that was presented to me of all verses was that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And boom, I was immediately convicted. And it was this conviction of sin, this conviction of the sin of pornography that really opened my heart to appreciate what Jesus might be saying to me. That day that I got saved, which is November 7th, 1977, I was delivered from pornography. It was really amazing. This doesn't always happen. Many, many men have, have struggled with pornography. They come to the Lord and they continue to struggle with it. I never struggled with it after that day. But God had visited me that day. He had demonstrated to me my sin by showing me the sin of pornography and he saved me out of sin. And he, he delivered me from this, this pornography, which was really quite amazing. But along with that came a source of discipline. I wasn't getting involved in the body of Christ as much as I should. And then this sickness started coming upon me. I was, my entire sophomore year, at least two days a week, I was sick in bed with enormous amounts of pain because of what was happening in my left kidney. And, and it was being dis misdiagnosed as a spastic colon, so I wasn't undergoing the right treatment. The day that I visited a church, which was at the end of my sophomore year, and I thought, this is amazing. That was on a Sunday. I'm coming back here, and I made that commitment to get deeply involved through this local church. That next day, it was diagnosed. That week, it was diagnosed, and I had surgery, and it was cleared up. And when I look back at that, it says in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The fear of God was wrought in my life through that. I thought, I never want to get outside the bounds of God. I mean, it is too painful. And I thank God as I reflect back on that. I thank God for what I went through. I thank God for it. Just this enormous pain, at least two days a week, my entire sophomore year, I was in bed. And, it, and when I say at least two, that means it was often three or four. And I remember even going to class at times, just in tremendous pain, and then going right back to my room. And I was losing all sort, sorts of weight, and it was really hard. And here I had just come to know the Lord, and, uh, and I remember even praying, Lord, why is this happening? I've, 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 I've come to know you. But he got hold of my heart. This is what suffering does. You look back on it and you say, wow, it has brought real peace into my life because of this. And it says that, that uh, of our fathers, in verse 10, they disciplined us for a short amount of time as seemed best to them. As seemed best to them. Sometimes we discipline our children rightly, sometimes wrongly. Any parent will confess to you, I've blown it many times. Uh, you look back when your children are grown and you just have to say, they did okay in spite of me. That's what you look back on. It says, but he disciplines us for our good so that 
we may share His holiness. He never makes any mistakes in His discipline. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. He wants to introduce us to His holiness. Then it says in verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. He says you're going to have an opportunity in life. He says strengthen those hands that are weak the knees that are feeble, and make straight the paths for your feet. This may, meant, may mean strengthen your brother, strengthen your sister. But it can be also, when you're going through discipline, address those things, because what you can do is you can receive this as discipline from the Lord and ask Him to deliver you from this, and in the midst of that, work in your life and, and make holiness real in your life. Whether you'll be delivered from the pain or whether you'll carry that burden to your grave, as did Paul. He spoke about this thorn that he had in the flesh, that he begged God three times. He requested of God to deliver him from it. I don't know if he'll deliver you from it here on this earth, but one, one day you'll be delivered. But he says, receive strength, because if you don't, he says, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He says, you're going to have all these things come upon your life, but if you don't deal with it, if you don't come to understand this, as God speaking to you and wanting to bring into your life a holiness, the limb is going to be put out of joint and become totally useless. We can respond to God's discipline or we can reject His discipline. And that's why He told us further up when He was quoting the Old Testament. He says, don't regard it lightly, His discipline. He says, and don't faint through it. He says, He does this. He says, for whom the Lord loves, He reproves. And He scourges every son whom He receives. None of us are going to be free from the discipline of the Lord. You can expect it as a believer. And, and He does it in many different ways. I can remember many times in His life, He's getting hold of me. My career just took off. I mean, God blessed my career so much. And I prayed every day for my career. I would go to the chapel every day on campus and just fall on my knees and ask God to bless it. And He did. And I remember I started getting really cocky and I had all these grants and my group was building up and everything. And I would look at these, these other young struggling professors and I'd think, you know, if you just wrote enough proposals and work hard, it'll go okay. Well, lo and behold, certain proposals weren't getting renewed. And you lose a couple of grants and all of a sudden you start sweating bullets because what happens is you have these labs that you've built up and you have to support all these people. You're, you're paying their tuition, you're paying their salary, you're paying their chemicals and supplies and you start losing a couple of grants. And, and I was working very hard. And the grants weren't being renewed. And I remember even having to get quote-unquote loans from the department to see me through. And then I said, Lord, I got it. This has been you the whole time. It's nothing about me. This has been you the whole time. And then Grant started getting funded again. He brings us through seasons in life to get our attention when we start losing track of him. And I can remember during those seasons where I thought, wow, I had all this going for me and everything's going well. I started, I started being really, really uh, 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 abrasive to people around me. I, I spoke to secretaries in a more curt manner than I should. And so, so much so that he got a hold of my heart that now anytime I have uh, associates working with me, secretaries or lab managers, 
I always give them a sheet of paper, which is a copy from a, watch, a book by Watchman Nee, where Watchman Nee talks about King Saul, how King Saul was humble when things were not going very well in his life. But when he started succeeding, his main problem was that of conceit. And so I give them the copy of this, this uh, uh, page from, from Watchman Nee's book, which is a devotional, and I hand it to them. And I talk about King Saul. And I say, if ever I start treating you wrongly, I want you to just say to me, King Saul. And I'll know exactly what you mean. And I'll apologize to you and back off. And uh, never has, have any of my associates ever given it to me, but one of my secretaries once told me, I was about to say to you, King Saul. I, I said, I got it. And I know why. May the Lord keep us humble. May he do this in our lives. And you will see seasons in your life where, where, you, where you, you think you, you have it all together. And then something comes upon you and you say, Lord, I'm utterly dependent upon you. And it's just like he did with the disciples. He was building them up at times because they didn't realize who they were in him. He'd build them up. And then at other times they got really cocky and they said, should we call down fire and brimstone upon these people who aren't listening to us? And he says, whoa, whoa, you don't know what spirit you're of. So walking with Christ is often walking on a knife's edge. You get too cocky and he has to, he has to bring you through things to show you you're not quite what you think you are. And then you start thinking of your to, yourself in an unclear manner, not realizing who you are in Christ, you start going the other way and he brings you back up. It is this constant walk. It happens to me all the time. I pray and I ask God to pour out his grace in this time and in these teachings on Sundays. My constant prayer is, Lord, make me a teacher like Jesus was. It says of Jesus that he didn't teach them as one of the scribes, but he taught them as one having authority. I said, Lord, Give me what you had. Give me what you had. I don't want to be like a normal preacher. Let me speak to people as one having authority that would just pierce to their hearts. It said of Jesus that his disciples said, were not our hearts burning within us when he spoke to us along the road and when he opened the scriptures to us? So I said, I said Lord, let the congregation's heart burn within them when I speak. So I cry out to God for this. So I can share and then get done and think, wow, I did pretty good today. <laughs> and here I am crying out to God on my knees. And then all of a sudden I think, hey, I did pretty good today. You see how fickle the Christian life is. How quickly we can forget that everything we do is by God's grace. And then he has to take us. And allow failure in our life to say, Lord, I'm really nothing. So that we realize it. And he brings us back up again. This is the Christian life. This is what it means to walk with Christ. You go from one end to the other and he keeps propping us back up and teaching us these things. This is how good God is. He continues to show us these things. This is the Christian life. So don't be surprised when you go through these things in life, don't be surprised. This is part of walking with a believer and you will come to welcome, you will come to welcome this training, this discipline. It says, 
All discipline for the moment in verse 11 seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Once it's over, you're like, wow, I get it, Lord. Verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all men. This is a commandment. We are to pursue peace with all men. So what's he doing? Throughout this this book of of Hebrews, he was teaching them to walk in faith. And now that he's exhorting them how to deal with discipline, he says it's for discipline you're going through this. Now he says in the midst of this, pursue peace with all men. In other words, you are being persecuted and it is your job to pursue peace. He calls us to be the initiators of peace. This attitude that says, well, when he says he's sorry, or when she says she's sorry, then I'll forgive them. That is not Christian. That is not a biblical attitude. Jesus initiates forgiveness. It says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He initiated this. He didn't say, well... When they come and say sorry to me, then I'll die for them. But until then, I'm not going to. He didn't do that. He tells us to pursue peace. It is an imperative, and it is that we, as believers, are the initiators. Do not expect the world to come to you and to initiate to initiate peace. It is our job to initiate this. Jesus said, the people who rule the world, the Gentiles, and those whom they lord over, want to lord it over them. That is not the way that I have for you. This dominance is foreign to the gospel, he says in, in Mark chapter 10. It talks about this. It's foreign to the gospel. We are to be the initiators of peace. It is amazing how one man, one woman, can change the entire thrust of a conversation. Something came up in the department and and there was this one professor who had been given a a, uh, a joint appointment in the department and he was in another appointment. He got a joint appointment in chemistry so he could recruit chemistry graduate students as well. So we give them access to the graduate students that we as a department recruit. So in, his, in the last five years, he hasn't, he's not put the name of the chemistry department on any of his publications, even though some of the students that we recruited were chemistry students. He hasn't participated in any of the, the uh, um, serving on the student committees. So when his name came back up for renewal, there were many people in the department, we don't want to renew him. He hasn't participated at all. You know, this guy, we email him, he doesn't respond. He doesn't. Now, I know the man. I know him to be a very nice man. Good man. He's running, you know, a big program, a big center. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot of things going on in his life. He's running a big, when you're running a big center for the National Science Foundation, you've got so much to do beyond just research. They hit you with so many different things. You're just like a school teacher. I mean, it's just like working in a kindergarten. You just got to do all these things to please the federal agency. You have no time to do research anymore. And so I tried to explain to them what he's going through. So, so finally he said, okay, we won't vote on it this week. You go and talk to him. 
So I called his office. He wasn't in. I spoke to his secretary, and she, I explained the situation. She said, oh, yeah, you know. Okay, well, so I got it all resolved. And I emailed back the, the people in, in, in charge in my department. I said, look, he's a good guy. He wants to participate. Just, just like that, to, we could diffuse an entire situation which, were, which caused a rift between our department and another person on campus forever. That rift would never go away. And I explained to them, I said, you know, we have to live with this faculty colleague for decades. In a home, things come up. In a family, things come up. You don't say, all right, well, just, you're out of here. You're not part of this. No, you work it out. That's the whole thing about families. And everyone in the department said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we, we, we're fine with him. It changed the whole situation. We are the pursuers of peace. You will be involved in situations where people will want to take a disjointed member of the little community or clique that you're in or group that you're in or college that you're in or college group and they'll want to have them separated because of something they said or something they've done. You are to be the pursuer of peace. You are to be the one to stand in and say, it's okay, let's get it worked out. Let's just talk with, let me talk with them. We'll get it worked out. You be the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God, Jesus said. Pursue peace. This is our job. The expectations upon us as believers are greater than the expectations upon the unbeliever. They will never come up to the level that we are because we have the Holy Spirit within us, so He expects more of us. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. You're given the Holy Spirit, more is expected of you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have no ability to function in what I'm talking about. Because the Holy Spirit allows you, fills you, and gives you the grace and the power to walk in this. This is what He gives you. Pursue peace with all men. It is our job to be the peacemakers, to pursue peace. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which... No one will see the Lord. This word sanctification means set apart. It means you are to be distinct, set apart is what sanctification means. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So in other words, there is a way that we are to be set apart and different such that people can see the Lord. Without sanctification, it says no one will see the Lord. We are to be different. I want you to turn to uh, um, the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This book of Thessalonians, what happened is Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Thessalonica and they preached the gospel. And some people came to the Lord. Shortly after they're preaching the gospel, some people accused them of preaching another king other than Caesar. There was a big uprising and the three of them just got out of there with their lives. Paul was concerned that the, a church never really got going there and he was concerned about the believers that had come to the Lord. So he sent Timothy to check on them. Timothy goes, brings back word to Paul uh, uh, saying... It's good. I mean, there's believers there. Now, they're having a few struggles, as is normal with young believers, but they're okay. So Paul writes them this letter to say, I am so happy that, that you're walking in the faith. But he starts addressing with them some problems that are common to new believers. 
common to new believers, he starts addressing for them some problems. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received us from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So look at what he says. He says, you received us. So now we have this word from you. He says that, that we have more instruction for you on how you ought to walk. He says, I know you're walking. Now I want you to excel all the more. You see how gentle this is. He doesn't just say, you guys aren't doing anything right. No, he says, I know you're doing, you're doing okay, but I want you to excel even more. He says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. So he says, we're giving you something on the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says, this is the will of God. This is the will of God. For, this is the will of God. <clears throat> Your sanctification. There's that word again. It's the will of God for you to be sanctified. It is the will of God for you to be set apart, to be different. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Wow, where'd this come from? The Bible is very specific on this. Very specific. This is common problem to new believers. Common problem. I remember when I came to know the Lord and, and I, I first attended a, um, a, a Josh McDowell. Uh, um, there was a video of Josh McDowell. And, uh, and, you know, you couldn't just play a video on your smartphone because there was no smartphone and there was no internet in those days. Imagine a world like that. And, and uh, so we rode our horses to class. <laughs> but but they, they, had, they had a video on campus and, and so it was put on by a Christian group and Josh McDowell was speaking and he started talking about all these, the way we ought to handle ourselves as believers in a sexual, how we were to sexually be handling ourselves. This was the first lesson I ever had on this because the world never taught me this. And I understand that you can't expect somebody, you can't expect your child to become a, a, a concert violinist without giving them violin lessons. I mean, this is part of it. So there are lessons here. So he says, For this is the will of God for your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. There's that word again. And honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother <clears throat> in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. <clears throat> Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. So he, rege so he who rejects this, is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Alright, so if we reject this teaching, this is a direct rejection of God who gives us the Holy Spirit. So he says, this is really an important thing. He says, this is what it means for you to be sanctified. And it's interesting, I didn't, I didn't plan this with Pastor Roger who talked about the same sort of thing today. I mean, it just... We're just, you're getting it from the mouth of two or three witnesses. He says, what I have for you is this. 
that you are to abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. He says that without sanctification, remember what he told them in Hebrews, no one will see the Lord. They will not see the Lord in us till we get this right. They will not see the Lord in us till we get this right. We have the world coming at us with all these different messages of what's right, of what's acceptable, acceptable, of what's okay. And he says right here, he says, not in lustful passion in verse 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God. He is speaking to Gentiles. The, the church in Thessalonica, he was speaking to Gentiles. He says, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles who do not know God. I don't want you to be like your peers who do not know God. Remember, he called us to something different, to pursue peace. He calls us to something higher than what the world has. That means that we as believers have to live differently. We are called to something different. And there are precise steps we take. So, for example, if you end up going to the room of somebody and you end up sleeping with that person, don't go to their room to study because you could end up with, in bed with them. Go study in the coffee shop if you have to meet. There are specific things that I do in my life to protect myself that you need to do in your lives to protect yourself. You don't go in a certain room with somebody of the opposite sex that you may end up having a relationship with and, be, and thrust yourself into that difficult situation. You avoid it. Even when people are starting to say, hey, maybe we should start dating. Being alone, if you find yourself drifting into places where you ought not, don't be alone. I'm not kidding you. Just don't be alone. If that relationship cannot be sustained by just meeting in the coffee shop or meeting in a bench outside, or do, then it's not worth sustaining. Because what happens should you get married? So you go away on a business trip, or the other goes away on a business trip, and now you're okay in having an affair? Do you think that the urge, the desire for someone of the opposite sex goes away once you're married? Do you think it goes away? I mean, as a man, I have drives for, for women all the time. But I can't exercise upon that because I am a married man. And so I do things to avoid situations that even appear as evil. There is no female that can come into my office without that office door being open. You say, well, you know, that's getting a bit much. Well, fine, for you that's a bit much, Hercules. But for me, <laughs> it's not a bit much. And my secretary knows that if any woman walks in the door and shuts the door behind her, she is to get up and open that door. And I usually meet her at the door because I'm getting up to open the door too. If they're coming in to cry about their grade in organic chemistry, they're going to cry in public. They're not going to cry alone. And I'll, go, I'll tell you how far I go with this. We have cameras for security in my office in my labs for security of the laboratories, but in my office as well. And you say, oh, that's getting a bit extreme. Well, I know the horror stories because I've been a professor for almost 30 years. And I know what's happened to professors in their offices. They didn't wake up in the morning, hey, I think I'm going to have an, 
and, and become an adulterer today. Didn't happen like that. And so there's always a watchful eye. I do things to protect myself. You need to do things to protect yourself. Imagine if some young girl should go come walking into my office, say one of my graduate students, and the door is shut, and we come out an hour later smiling. It could have been totally innocent. But there's a perception there that people will wonder. There's a perception. And if you think there's not a perception, you are naive. I need to avoid, the scriptures say, even avoid the perception, the appearance, it says, of evil. We are to avoid even the appearance of evil. If you don't get the relationship right, if you have to constantly be sleeping with your partner before marriage just to satisfy that need, I'm telling you, that need is not going to go away just because you get married. What happens if your partner can't have sex for six months because, say, say the woman is having a difficult pregnancy and she can't have sex for six months? You're going, well, hey, I'm, a, I'm a man. I, I have a need, you know. Now, we will all look at that and say, that is wrong. But it's the same thing outside the bonds of marriage because the Bible speaks again and again of fornication. There are steps that we take to be sanctified, to be set apart. And the way you deal with that is you take physical steps to be free of that. I have a whole teaching on my website called Scriptural Sexual Ethics. I encourage you to listen to that. Scriptural Sexual Ethics. It is a six-part series. You start in part one, and then you go to part two, and you work your way through it like that. It has to be go- gone through in that way. It is three and a half hours, so it's like half hour per, per, uh, uh, per session, and you just stick the little pods in your ears and you listen. And it's important to get this right, because the struggle is there. You will take pornography in your marriage. You think, well, once I'm married, I don't need pornography. Oh, you'll bring it right into your marriage and right into your bedroom. Unless you get this right. And this is why we do battle with these things now. He speaks to us about sanctification. We are to be set apart. And I don't want to act as if these things are easy. They are not easy at all. As I told you, There was a time in my life when I was addicted to pornography. Overwhelming urge for pornography. And it was much harder in my day to get these things because you had to go into a seedy shop to get these magazines. And I got them because I worked in a gas station and the men would throw them out in the trash on their way home from their business trips. It is not easy. And it is harder today because of the internet. But there are mechanisms to deal with this. There are accountability mechanisms. There are counseling mechanisms. Deal with these things, my brothers and sisters. Deal with them. Because without it, nobody's going to see the Lord in your life. And you can think you're hiding it, but the scriptures tell us differently. Nobody's going to see the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord God. And I pray, Father, for these young people that they would learn to pursue peace, to be the initiators of peace. They would learn what it is 
when they're going through suffering, to say, Lord, do your work in my life, lest this limb come out of joint and be, be useless. And Father, that they would be sanctified and set apart. Father, for my brothers and sisters who struggle with pornography, I pray, Lord, for your deliverance to come, that they would get involved in counseling and these things that are available, accountability that's available to them. For those that are struggling in the sexual world, Father, I pray for your grace and your victory to be there, the sanctification without which no one would see the Lord. Father, that they would understand your word, the commandment of God that draws them to this, that if they reject this, they are rejecting the God who has given them the Holy Spirit so that they would receive this and say, Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. Your mercy and your grace upon them, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.